Pastor Xavier Reese and the simple truths of an honest living. One of the most profound truths that Christian can give to the world regarding integrity is by working hard, faithfully, and honestly. You are to give the best eight hours to your employer that you can possibly give, not with eye service as man pleasers, but in the fear of God. Ephesians 6, 5 and Colossians 3, 22. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. To what God calls, He enables. To where He guides, He provides. Conducting ministry with this kind of faith, by definition, it's all about relying on God for resources. And that's what we see in the example of the Apostle Paul, a tent maker and never having burdened the church. In our Simple Truth study for today, Pastor Xavier reveals the integrity of Paul as exemplified in three different aspects of stewardship over his ministry. Let's listen. Acts chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 38. The message is entitled, Paul's Witness to His Integrity. Paul's personal witness of his integrity in ministry is marked by the following. First of all, verse 33, the proclamation of his integrity. Listen to it. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Paul had not merchandised the Ephesian church. That's what he's saying. The word coveted, as you know, means to set your heart upon belong for and desire. The context will always dictate whether it's good or bad. Paul the Apostle had no longing of heart for simply obtaining material things. This is very difficult for us to understand because especially in our age and uh, the generation we live in America, this is pumped and pushed and advertised and inculcated through the educational system that this is what we are to do. And so people live for this today, and they end up wealthy, lonely, and miserable. Notice secondly, the confirmation for his integrity is laid out. Verse 34, Paul had worked with his own hands to have provisions for life. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessity and for those who were with me. So first of all, to provide for his own necessities by his own two hands, labor. He worked as a tent maker with Achille and Priscilla, Acts 18.3. As he arrived at Corinth, Paul had modeled for them how to be resourceful. Now notice the personal example was by every manner and method of physical labor. In every way that they saw him, he exemplified this. In 1 Corinthians 9, 17 and 18, Paul said he had been entrusted with a stewardship regarding the gospel and that his reward was that when he preached the gospel, he would do it without charge, not abusing his authority in the gospel. That was for him. And that's a biblical principle that every pastor has to remember, that he doesn't become greedy, that he doesn't become manipulative. He has to be careful. Second Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, Paul told the Corinthians that he had robbed other churches by taking their wages to minister to them. But he had not been a burden to not one Corinthian. What he lacked, the Macedonian supplied. And what he's talking about is the Philippian church. 2 Corinthians 11, 8, 9. 
That was the only church that ever gave him two offerings. He didn't ask for it. They sent it to him. Notice Paul had modeled for them how to be compassionate also. In order to support the weak, which means to lay hold of, as if to hold up to help. Literally to take by the hand needy and poor ones. Paul in no way is teaching socialism that all resources are to be distributed equally, such as communism teaches or socialist governments. Many people try to point to the book of Acts, but if you were with us, we've taught you that's not what it's talking about there. It was voluntary. They did that, and it was a bad decision. That's why the church in Jerusalem went broke. It's better for you to keep your resources and be a steward. They work for you so you can continue to live and provide for others rather than selling everything. Now you have nothing to work for. You understand? It's just simple, basic, common sense. Now this doesn't mean, as we'll see, that Paul is saying that we have to meet every need. Paul taught by example to be sensitive and practical whether we agree with it or not. Whenever a need arose, not that every need is to be met, nor should it. Sometimes God is trying to teach a person a lesson. And you step in a spiritual Robin Hood, and God has to teach that person a lesson again on stewardship. At other times, the person's a lazy bum, a manipulator. And you're being a bad steward of God's resources. That is the hardest thing to decide. Who do I help? Who I don't? I mean, people come in here with stories that rents your heart. Paul makes this clear, knowing the laziness of man to work and simply to live off the Christian body. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 13, he says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you uh, in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness, eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not be weary in doing well. So he says, be careful of the lazy slugs, but don't use as an excuse not to help those that God is leading you. You understand? Paul commanded the believer in Ephesians 4, 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Before as a non-believer, you were a con artist, you were lazy, you didn't work. Now you work to glorify God, and now you have something because you're steward of your money to help those who God points to you. You see, we want to help people and obey God as long as it doesn't cost me. Paul expresses to the Philippians his gratitude as they were the only ones who sent him financial help again once and twice. Philippians 4, 10 through 20. He never demanded it. He never required They just sent him. It was not a practice. It's not doctrine. But we've made it a modern day doctrine. He declared that he had learned to be content in whatever state he found himself in. You're a steward of what you have. Live where you're at, not beyond it. Always put a dime away, you understand? For the rainy day. 
he declared that what he sought was not the gift, but the fruit that would abound to their account. That means that God accounts what you do for others through God's love. He has a ledger and he keeps count of it to reward you. If you do it to be seen, you've got your reward. The ledger's clean. <laughs> and so Paul says, I-, I thank you for this. And you know what? This is fruit to your account. Because out of the right motive. He declared the gift to be a sweet smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. Never letting your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Now sounding the trumpet. Notice Paul had based it on the principle of the Lord Jesus that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The saying is not found in any of the Gospels. It has to be something declared to Paul by the Lord in one of his appearances. Or it's something that the Lord said and taught, but it's not recorded. Either way, Paul gives it here very direct, as the Lord says. It's the words of Christ, the ultimate authority. Now, the scriptures say that Jesus became poor for our sakes, that we might be rich through his poverty in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He gave his life for the world of his own free will, John 3, 16, John 10, 18, and many other places. Jesus divested himself of his glory, never of his deity, taking on the form of a servant, as Philippians 2, 5 through 7 tells us. Being rich, he became poor. Just to give us a glimpse when we think we're doing a lot for God. In fact, when Paul deals with giving and tithing from our heart in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he finishes, he says, now what, what should we say about God's unspeakable gift? When we give what we give, we do what we do, and we compare it to what God gave and did for us, we should be embarrassed. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. Hmm. The apostle declares in 2 Corinthians twelve fourteen the same principle from a different perspective as he stated, that the parents are to lay up for the children, not the children for the parents. If you're a parent, you know that your responsibility is to take care of your child. Clothe them, feed them, protect them. And you do it as a parent as your responsibility, and your motive behind that is love. If it's duty, it gets to be a drag. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, again tells them love was his motive for them. And that he would gladly spend and be spent for them, though the more abundantly he loved them, the less he be loved. This parallels the ministry. At times from the pulpit to the pew, some people get upset and they think that you're after them or this and that. But as a parent and child, they don't understand. I'm not talking about abusive leadership. I'm talking about healthy, sound leadership. But often from the pew, we are like spiritual children and we want our own way and we have our own views And we don't want to line up with scripture. And so we as pastors and leaders have to be faithful to the responsibility of pastors regardless. 
And then as parents, you know that your children, one day come back, and they call you blessed. But between now and then, they'll call you many other things. And it's no different in ministry, you understand? A pastor has to understand that. 2 Corinthians 8.10, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that as ministers of God, they were always under affliction, sorrow, yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich, and having nothing, and yet possessing all things as their Lord and Master Jesus, by their Lord and Master Jesus. You understand? One day, the baker took the farmer to court because he felt the farmer was cheating him and his amount of cheese. But when the judge asked what he used to weigh his one pound of cheese, he said, well, judge, I put the one pound of bread on one side of the scale, and then I balanced it out with my cheese. He demonstrated that it wasn't the one he was blaming that didn't have integrity. He did not have integrity. One of the most profound proofs a Christian can give to the world regarding integrity is by working hard, faithfully, and honestly. You are to give the best eight hours to your employer that you can possibly give, not with eye service as man pleasers, but in the fear of God. Ephesians 6, 5 and Colossians 3, 22. This is one of the greatest bad examples in the Christian community. Christians that are bad examples in the labor force. They're not people of their word. They have no integrity. The Christian believes that if a person will not work, neither will he eat. Very simple. Second Thessalonians 3.10, as we mentioned. Another proof of integrity the believer gives to the world is his willingness to give of his finances, believing that the Lord is his example. 1 Corinthians 16.1 and 2 says that he gives to the Lord as God blesses him once a week. And this is what we do. We don't take special offerings. We don't take a midweek offering. We take once a week on Sunday. As God has blessed you. By the way, this is your privilege. But it should never be forced. This is your decision. Not mine. Not from what you do not have. But from what God has blessed you. Not being indifferent so that others are burdened over the ministry. Paul makes this very clear. He does it cheerfully and loving in response to the Lord's faithfulness and obedience to the word as 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. The word cheerfully there means hilariously. If you can't give hilariously, God really doesn't need it. He is compassionate financially to those in need as God directs him and comforts the faint-hearted or holds the weak and is patient with all is 1 Thessalonians 5.14. He doesn't do it to be seen or expect to be repaid, but he does it until the Lord. Experiencing personally, the principle is more blessed to give than to receive. This you don't learn from books. This you don't learn just from the pulpit and the sermon. This you learn because you walk with God and you hear his voice and you're obedient to what he directs and shows you. You understand, ladies and gentlemen? For God is able to supply all your needs according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. If he directs you, he'll guide you, he will meet the need. If he doesn't, then you've made a mistake. 
A person does what he does in obedience to Jesus due to his love for Jesus. Out of love, not ulterior motives. To please God, not to be seen of man. As a matter of practice of life, not pressure or compulsion. The confirmation of his integrity was undeniable. Undeniable. Incredible man. Notice thirdly, the lamentation due to his integrity. Verse 36, Paul knelt and prayed with all those present. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Paul knew that prayer alone would strengthen them for what God had in store for them as well as himself. Prayer is the invisible world of God's affairs. Prayer is where spiritual battles are won and lost. Remember that, parents, for your children. Paul knew that prayer is a commitment to the will of God, not a petition for God to change his mind. Jesus demonstrated that clearly in Matthew 26, 39. Your will be done, not mine. Prayer is my aligning of my mind and heart according to the will of God. Prayer is confident assurance in one who reigns in heaven. Prayer is resting in the goodness and faithfulness of God. Notice 37. Paul allowed them to express their love. Then they wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. They wept freely and he didn't rebuke them. The word freely means much. They were deeply touched emotionally by the fact that they would not see or hear him again. The ability to cry expressed their affection, appreciation, and closeness to Paul. Notice they willingly express their love by touching and kissing Paul. The act of touching demonstrates tenderness and fondness that is allowed only to those who are relatives or close friends. It is a mark of intimacy. You don't just walk up to a stranger, give him a hug, and give him a big lip lock. You don't do that. Today it's kind of weird. You probably do it, but you know. But you shouldn't anyway, okay? Cochinos, let me be doing that. Um, the act of kissing demonstrates sincerity and intimacy by one who can be trusted, a mark of loyalty and faithful devotion. You understand? Jesus said to Judas, Judas, do you betray the son of man with a kiss? The imperfect tense demonstrates the degree of love and how much they would miss him as they kept on kissing him fervently and repeatedly, having a difficult time to let him go. Notice in 38, Paul would remember them by their affection, sorrowing most of all for the worst which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. First recalling their sorrow in their last meeting, because they would not see his face again. The word sorrowing means to cause intense pain, to be in anguish, even torment. The word is used only by Luke two other times. The first one is when Joseph and Mary returned to Jerusalem after realizing that Jesus was missing in Luke 2 8. And when they got to the temple there, as he's disputing with the doctors, as your father and I have sought you sorrowing. That's the word. They were in torments. You ever been there? You lose your kid for two or three seconds in the store? 
Whoa, you freak out. The other is in Luke 16, 24, when the rich man cried out from Hades to Abraham, I am tormented. That's the word. In this flame. This scenario we pass off so quickly, but this was a very emotional, very passionate moment, a very turmoil in the heart, you understand? But also recalling how they valued him by their desire to be with him to the last minute as they walked him to the ship. Have you been there at the airport? Especially now where you can't go up to the gate anymore, you know, and you see them get their ticket and you're there, you hug, you cry, you pray, and then you see them go give the ticket up the escalator and, you're, and you've got to go to the ship and you're, you're, you're looking until the very last, last minute and you get up on some, you know, until the very last. That's what's happening here, ladies and gentlemen. Too often we do not enjoy or take advantage of those around us while we have them. At other times, we don't realize how valuable people are to our lives until they are gone, leaving, or left. It's a weakness of our flesh. We lose sight of people. May the expression of our passion for each other be evident, foremost, by our commitment for praying for each other. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. James 5.16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. May we freely express our love for one another with tears, reproof, rebuke if need be, and joy without ulterior motives being filled by God's love. As 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8 says, it never fails. It does what it has to do. It counts the cost. We are told to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ in Galatians 6, 2. Peter says, and above all things, uh, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover the multitudes of sins, 1 Peter 4, 8. Doesn't mean it closes his eyes, ignores the sin, it confronts it, looks for forgiveness, for repentance, forgives it, and he covers it, he doesn't spread it. You understand? That's what he's talking about. But the greatest authority is the Lord Jesus Christ. As he told his disciples, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have loved one for another. John 13, 35. It doesn't mean that we won't have differences. It doesn't mean that sometimes relationship will be strained. It means that we'll do all that we have to do and must do within the scriptures. And when both members yield to the scriptures, it's fulfilled. When one does not, there's nothing you can do about it. You understand? You continue to pray. You continue to do what you can and remain innocent. The lamentation due to his integrity was uncontrollable. You get the picture here? Paul the Apostle closes meeting with the Ephesian elders by his personal witness to his integrity in the ministry which he had demonstrated in Ephesus. The proclamation of his integrity was indisputable. The confirmation of his integrity was undeniable. The lamentation due to his integrity was uncontrollable. Man, I am so glad we've done this series because now you know what a pastor is supposed to be. 
May God have mercy on each of us and may we yield to his wisdom every day. Pastor Xavier Reese draws to a close Paul's final farewell to the Ephesian elders, highlighting some important simple truths for integrity in ministry. And with just enough time before we close for today, let me mention that copies of today's study titled Paul's Witness to His Integrity are available on CD for just $4. And this will also include everything Pastor Xavier shared the last time we were together as well. So once again, the title to ask for is Paul's Witness to His Integrity or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. And then be back for more Simple Truths right here next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com